0: Thank you, Caleb. Good evening, Levittown. Caleb just made fun of my church's name. We're the only church in the country that has a parenthesis in our name. I'm going to get rid of it one day. Thank you for having me. We are a Baptist church, but the parenthesis is weird. I don't get it. It's been a blessing to be with you already tonight. I've been blessed. I didn't know Jacob was going to be here tonight. Uh, I got lunch with Jacob on Friday. I didn't know we, were, we this was happening. Uh, we are in Woodside, Queens. We are surrounded by the nations and have been somewhat concerned of how little we are effectively reaching the nations around us, especially the the unreached people groups that Jacob is working with. So we just got together with him to pick his brain and to hope to learn from him and hope to partner with him a little bit more. So I'm so excited that he was here. It also means that. North Carolina's taken over here uh, NYC because we are both uh, from North Carolina so we are we're glad to be with you thank you for bearing with us Southerners but we are here to worship we have worshiped through song we've worshiped through the edification of uh, the encouragement of the gospel going forth now we're going to worship through the word uh, through the preaching and hearing of the word so Genesis chapter 20. Please, if you have a copy of God's word, you need to open that up and have that in front of you tonight. We're going to look at one of the lesser known stories of Abraham. And since we've talked a little bit about missions and evangelism, let's see if we can connect this story a little bit to to some of that. The story of Abraham is a story of God's promises. And your story, by the way, is a story of God's promises. Starting back in chapter 12, God has made Abraham these grand and glorious promises. In Genesis 20, where we are tonight, God has not yet delivered on those promises, and it has been decades, about 24 years at this point. That's a long time. You think all the way back to 1999. That's a long time to wait for something. Maybe you have been waiting and praying that long or longer for something. So what do you do? when God seems quite slow to perform his promises? And why is God sometimes seemingly quite slow to perform his promises? Why 24 years from promise to fulfillment for Abraham? I think Genesis 20 can give us some answers and some encouragement this evening. Uh, God is working always in everything, and he is working always and in everything purposefully. So what is he doing here, and what is his Purpose and what's the point of this story? Well, just to be clear up front, just to make sure we're all on the same page, uh, most simply, this story is here to remind you that God preserves His promises and His people. It's going to be kind of our big idea tonight. And we're going to see that God preserves His people through the performing of His promises, and He does so in spite of and actually through what seem to be great obstacles to the fulfilling of those promises. God has made Abraham grand and glorious promises. Levittown, God has made you grand and glorious promises. Can you, will you trust him to keep those promises? And what do you do when it seems like there are these huge obstacles to the keeping of those promises? What do you do when you are the huge obstacle uh, to the uh, doing and keeping of those promises? promises. Because Abraham is gonna mess up big time here. What's going to happen to the promise? There's this pattern in Abraham's story. God promises Abraham jeopardizes the promise. God promises Abraham jeopardizes the promise. It just keeps happening. And here we again again we have it jeopardized by Abraham's sin. But it's actually in the very next chapter in twenty one that we have the promise fulfilled in spite of Abraham's sin that we're going to consider tonight. So God, as he does throughout his word, is going to great lengths to demonstrate to you his faithfulness, to demonstrate to you that the fulfillment of his promises is dependent upon him and not on you. Abraham is not the hero of this story, and tonight we're going to look at the two main human characters of this story, Abraham and a man named Abimelech. And Abimelech is a pagan, means he is not part of God's people. And throughout this whole story, it's really strange, Abimelech is presented clearly as appearing more righteous than Abraham. And yet, this guy is the one that's outside of the covenant. He is not part of God's people. He is out. Abraham is in. And so I think that this could be a very helpful study for us, as I think that there's a lot of identity confusion out there these days. There is conversion confusion in the church sometimes these days. Who is in? Who is out? Who are God's people and who are not? And what's the difference? Abimelech seems pretty good here. Abraham does not. Abimelech is not God's people. Abraham is. Why is that? Well, let's see. Again, God preserves his promises and his people. That's the sermon. We're gonna briefly walk through four points, uh, kind of strange, wordy points, but that's how I roll. So you just gotta, you're stuck with it. Point number one: We're gonna see very clearly that God's people are sometimes pretty bad. God's people are sometimes pretty bad, and then surprisingly, in point two, we're gonna see that pagans sometimes seem pretty good. That's strange. Why is that? And and what's the difference between these two groups of people? Point number three, we're going to see God's promise to preserve and purify his sometimes pretty bad people. That's going to be the difference. And then finally, number four, we're going to see that God's promise through his people is the only hope for the world. So I'll walk through those and I'll explain those to you as as we go. But can you and will you trust God to keep his promises to you? Let's read this story and see what happens. This is the most important part. I'm going to read for you the whole of Genesis chapter 20. This is God's living and active word. God reveals himself through this word. He relates himself to us through this word. So pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you tonight. Genesis 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God calls me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, and male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, "'Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you.' To Sarah he said, "'Behold, I have given your brother "'a thousand pieces of silver. "'It is a sign of your innocence "'in the eyes of all who are with you. "'And before everyone you are vindicated.' Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children.' For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. If you would bow with me, let's first go to the Lord and ask him for his help in this time. Father, thank you for this opportunity tonight to be together. Father, thank you already for the testimony of of new life in Christ. Father, thank you that you are the God who saves sinners Father, we are often the saved sinners who are far less impressed with that fact than we should be. Father, impress upon us the goodness and the glory and the grace of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Father, convince us of the utterly and absolutely lost condition of all those around us apart from Christ and more and more. Convince and compel us to live lives that reflect that fact, lives that glorify you and lives that seek the good of those around us. Um, Father, do in this time now what I cannot do. It is late, and we have worked, and and we are tired. Father, wake us up. Father, focus our hearts and our minds on your word, and we pray that you would do your will in this time uh, to your glory and and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, point number one, God's people are sometimes pretty bad. I want us to start first with Abraham. So this is God's man. He is standing in for and representing God's people tonight, you. How is Abraham portrayed here? Not so good. And this is the second time, if you are familiar with Abraham's story, that we have seen him do this exact same thing. Back in chapter 12, Abraham heads down to Egypt. He tells his wife in verse 11 that her beauty is risky for him. Because other men will want her. The ancients, unlike us today, actually understood that adultery was the most uh, terrible of sins. It was a crime. Uh, so Abraham tells Sarah, hey, say that you're my sister so that I won't get killed so that someone can get you. Right? They were more willing to kill someone than they were to knowingly commit adultery. So this is Abraham's scheme. Pharaoh hears of Sarah's beauty, takes her into his harem, and he rewards Abraham richly. God afflicts Pharaoh with a plague. The pagan rebukes the Christian. What is this you have done to me? Sarah is restored to Abraham, and they are sent away out of Egypt. Twenty years later, here we go again. And in fact, the story seems so similar. Uh, There's even another one coming in chapter 26. Isaac stupidly does the same thing, like father, like son, but the stories are so similar that critical scholars argue that this must be some sort of editorial error. It's just the same story, and it's been mistakenly multiplied three times. There's no way Abraham would have done the same stupid, sinful thing twice. Ha. These scholars don't understand human nature very well these scholars don't understand sin very well so we need to be very careful to not make that same mistake tonight look at verse 1 Abraham is journeying south we don't know why he heads to the land of the Philistines and there again in verse 2 he lies saying she is my sister Abimelech takes Sarah uh, who would have been about 90 years old at this time Abimelech is the king of Gerar. There are multiple Abimelechs throughout scripture, so this is probably a sort of a royal title, just like Pharaoh. Abimelech means my father is king, and we will come to him in a moment. But we've read the whole story. It's pretty simple and clear, the narrative. So I want to skip ahead and focus on Abraham. Uh, Abimelech is upset when the deceit is exposed. So he says to Abraham in verse 9, What have you done to us? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Now look at Abraham's response in verse 11. Excuses. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is my sister, the daughter of my father. Though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Excuses. Abraham lied. It doesn't matter if he told a half Truth, it's intent that matters. His intent was to deceive and it was to mislead. And his intent to do so was for his own self-protection at great risk to his wife. There there is no defending of Abraham here. Some people actually try to do that, but it, it, it cannot be done. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, do you know this? Have you memorized this? Are you working on this at least? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what it means to be a husband. That's what it means to be the head. That's what it means to, to lead. It's to give yourself up for your wife. But here we see Abraham giving up his wife for himself. That which was supposed to be most precious to him. That which he was supposed to most cherish and protect at all costs At the cost of his own life, he callously gives up and over to another man. Inexcusable. Calvin writes on this, Abraham thought nothing of his wife's danger. He sinned through unbelief by attributing less than he ought to the providence of God. And so we are warned how dangerous a thing it is to trust our own counsels. That is a good word. For all of us, be wary of trusting your own counsel. Use your elders, use your brothers and sisters in Christ. Get good, godly counsel. Abraham failed to trust God and his promise. He cared not for the life of his wife. He lied. He misrepresented God, and on and on and on we could go. The point is that God's people are sometimes pretty bad. Abraham has been regenerated and redeemed. He is a believer, Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was righteous. We will look at that in a moment, but here we see the righteous behaving badly. And this is really important for us to understand tonight. Sometimes God's people, sometimes Christians, sometimes you and me do stupid, sinful things sometimes spectacularly so just consider David the man after God's own heart adultery murder he doesn't get enough credit for also being a terrible father just consider Peter denying the Lord he loved then being graciously restored then again denying the Lord that he loved in refusing to dine with the Gentiles Just consider Paul, Romans 7, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. This is Paul. This is the greatest theologian who has ever lived. He too was apparently sometimes Pretty bad. And you know, I'm highlighting this fact, first off, just because it's true, it's biblical, and we've all experienced it. Expectations are so important. You need to be told what the Christian life is like, and it's hard. And you need to be told of the battle that it is so that you will be ready for that battle and not shocked and confused and devastated when you struggle. And second, though, I'm telling you this because I think there's some confusion about this. I think there is some confusion about what it really means to be a Christian and what determines whether one is or not. Christianity is not morality. Christianity is not social activism. A Christian is not someone who is pretty good and does some pretty nice things. A Christian is someone who was dead in their trespasses and sins, but has been made alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. A Christian is one who has been born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who then sees and hates their sin with their newly opened eyes, turns from that sin, that's repentance, and believes and clings to Christ, that's faith, and who even after doing so remains a sinner, because it's, it's, it's not our goodness. It is not our morality that saves us. And since it is God who saves us, and God's goal is to save us entirely and completely, which means he is going to totally transform us and make us like Christ, perfectly righteous, perfectly good. That means that there are going to be times when God ordains and allows that remaining sin to be exposed because there's a lot of it in our hearts. Those hearts that are deceitful above all else. We are so much more sinful than we know. That's one of the things that I most want to know when I'm trying to talk with someone and discern their spiritual state and, and what they understand and if they're born again. Or, have, you, have you felt the weight and the depths of your depravity and of your sinfulness? And Have you utter, utterly despaired? of your own goodness, and hope of, uh, of proving your own goodness in any way whatsoever. God knows that sin that remains, and he loves us so much more than we know, so much that he is going to do something about that sin that is so bad. And so one of the things that he does is he lets it out. He reveals it. So that he can deal with it. He exposes it so that we can be exposed to our own wretchedness and utter neediness. So that we will then turn to and cling to him all the more. We've got to start off by seeing that sometimes Christians are pretty bad. Point number two. Because this one's a little surprising and strange. Pagans sometimes seem pretty good. Let's consider Abimelech. He looks pretty good, doesn't start off so good. He takes Sarah uh, in verse 2, but that was tragically normal king behavior back then. Now look at verse 3. Let's focus here. I love verse 3. God speaks to Abimelech in a dream. This is actually a rare occurrence in scripture. There are only a handful of dreams, maybe 21 of them in the 1189 chapters of the Bible. Most of the dreams are very early. Before we have any sort of the word recorded and written down. And actually in scripture, God speaks more to pagans through dreams than he does to his own people. That's interesting. I would like to unpack that with you. Uh, We do not have time. The point is that this doesn't happen a lot in the Bible. This is not the norm. Your dreams are just dreams. My wife dreamed that I was eaten by an alligator. So thankfully it's just a dream. right? I'm, I'm still here. Not worried about the alligators, Um, just a dream. So God does, though, in this case, come to this pagan dream, uh, this pagan king in a dream, and he speaks to him, and look at what God says. This is great. Behold, you are a dead man. Maybe we should incorporate that into our evangelistic strategy. But what a great opening that is. And if you think about it, what a biblically true statement. That is, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Combine that with Romans 3.23, and all have sinned. That means that this this declaration, behold, you are a dead man, is ultimately true of everyone. Everyone. I hate traffic. So much that we came out really early today because getting out here is like coming to a different state. It's so far away and the traffic's so bad. So I brought my daughters. We came out early to sit and work in Barnes & Noble. And then we went to eat at the melt shop in the mall and eat grilled cheeses and we had a lot of fun. But I was working on this and thinking about this at the same time. And so as I'm watching all of these people and passing by all of these people, as I'm getting ready to prepare this sermon, I'm being reminded of what I'm about to say to you today and thinking, hey, every single one of these people... If they do not know Jesus Christ, every single one of them are dead in their trespasses and sins. Every person that you interact with, every person that you sit by on the train, every coworker, every family member, every neighbor, every single person that does not know Jesus Christ is a dead man. You see, this this gospel, this good news that there is forgiveness and life offered in Christ only makes sense. And it's only actually good news if we first understand that we are dead and that all sin deserves death. We were all of us dead in our trespasses and sins. I mean, I want you to honestly consider, do you look at the people around you in this light? And does your interaction with the non-believers around you, in any way reflect the fact that we believe that every person who dies apart from Christ spends an eternity in hell? I've been very concerned with how little my evangelistic uh, motivation and my mission-mindedness reflects the fact of what I actually believe about all of those who are separated from Jesus Christ. I'm seeking by the grace of God to begin to bridge that gap. Do we think of people around us as actually dead in trespasses and sins. We have largely lost this conviction today. We are tempted to look at all the pagans around us and think of them as all, you know, they're pretty decent people for the most part. They're taking stands for justice. They're doing all these good things. Pagans sometimes seem pretty good. But we have to start with this. Behold anyone Apart from Christ, you are a dead man. And here God says that specifically to Abimelech. You are a dead man on account of the woman that you have taken. Again, God's words. Abimelech would rightly deserve death for the sin of adultery. Yeah, We don't even think adultery is a sin today. But it like all sin not dealt with is deserving of death. The wages of sin is death? We just don't believe that. I just don't think that we really believe that. And we don't live in light of that fact. But continuing on, look at Abimelech's response. He protests. You are a dead man. He doesn't just die. He, he protests. Look at verse 4. He's not touched Sarah. And so he says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Stop there. There's, there's two interesting things to note there. He doesn't say, will you kill me, an innocent person? He is the one who would have sinned, but he says, an innocent people. And it's even more interesting if you're using the King James. The King James is a, is a better translation here. He says, will you kill a righteous nation? The word that the ESV translates innocent is just the Hebrew word for righteous. And the word the ESV translates people is the Hebrew word for the nations. Right? We are seeking to reach the nations with the gospel. This is the same word that was used back in 1818 where God says that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in Abraham through the seed, through Christ. But so first off in that verse we have some sort of principle of representation, right? As the king goes, so goes the nation. And second, this chapter has something to do with Abraham's relationship with the nations. And we've just seen that in Genesis 2. 19, that's the, uh, the terrible story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God wipes out a nation in his just judgment. Abraham had said to God in 1825, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Yes is the answer, always. He cannot not do that which is just. And so the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was just. The wages of sin is death. But here, too, we see Abimelech talking about justice. Look at verse 5. Abimelech rightly points out Abraham's deception. He told me she was his sister. And he says this, In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. These are pretty strong words. Innocence, integrity, innocence. Maybe like Abraham, he's just lying. Nope. Verse 6. God affirms Abimelech's affirmation. Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God then commands Abimelech to return Sarah to Abraham, warns him that if he doesn't, he shall surely die. And where we just saw Abraham respond poorly, with the making of excuses, without owning up to his sin, look at Abimelech's response. Verse 8, He immediately gathers everyone, shares what God has said, and they were very much afraid. That's ironic because that's the same word Abraham uses in verse 11 when he says that, oh, there's no fear of God in this place. Here they are afraid. And the great irony of Abraham's statement is that it's actually he who is the one who is fearing man rather than fearing God. So verse 9, we've seen Abimelech calls to Abraham, what have you done to us? You have, uh, how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Kid, what a line that is. The pagan rebukes the patriarch. Abraham keeps making excuses. He doesn't own up. He doesn't repent. Abimelech's response, verse 14, Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants, gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. So he gives Abraham all this money. He invites him to stay in his land. He affirms Sarah's innocence in the whole affair to vindicate and justify her. Abimelech seems pretty good. Sometimes pagans seem pretty good. If you looked at the passage, and if you were able to to remove verse 7 and 17, 18. In other words, if you were able to take out what God says about Abraham and what God does on behalf of Abraham and you just considered the remaining 15 verses, which of these men would you assume was God's? Abimelech or Abraham? I think we'd all say Abimelech because he looks pretty good and Abraham looks pretty bad. And the point is that if our basic understanding of what it means to be a Christian, is little more than morality, is little more than looking pretty good and being nice. and We're going to run into all kinds of problems. We are conversion confused these days. We are Christian confused. We are confused about what it even means to be a Christian and what makes one a Christian Abimelech looks pretty good and comes across in this count looking better than Abraham. And this is sometimes going to be the case. Pagans can do all kinds of relatively good things. They can feed the poor. They can adopt orphan children. They can be civil rights activists. They can do good, rightly understood. They can do relative good. And so we need to be able to affirm this goodness but to rightly understand and define this goodness. Because we have to understand whatever this goodness is, we have to understand it in light of Romans 3.12. No one does good. Or Jesus' words in Mark 10.18. No one is good except God alone. I think that Calvin, he really helped me out in this. Calvin breaks it down like this. And he says that we have to set forth this distinction between earthly things In heavenly things. And so he writes that earthly things are those which do not pertain to God or his kingdom, to true justice, or to the blessedness of the future life, but which have their significance and relationship with regard only to the present life. And then he says, heavenly things are the pure knowledge of God, the nature of true righteousness, and the mysteries of the heavenly kingdom. So this distinction is important because in earthly things, pagans can do all kinds of good. In heavenly things, none. None. Because of Romans 14, 23. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. All that is not from faith is ultimately sin. That's why Augustine used to refer to pagan virtues, right? The good Uh, that pagans sometimes do, he would call this virtue splendid vices. Splendid, that sounds nice, but it's actually still a vice. Splendid vices. Because there can be no true virtue without the worship of the true God. There can be no true righteousness except that which is received from the true God. He says, yeah, there's a virtue which is employed in service of human glory. It's a relative virtue. I guess that's better than no virtue. Um, it makes somewhat, someone less depraved, I guess, but still depraved. It's only a relative virtue when God requires real virtue. It is only a relative righteousness when you know what God requires? Perfect righteousness. You must be perfect because goodness must accord with some Standard and true goodness must accord with God's standard. And God's standard is absolute perfection. God's standard is that goodness is not determined just by action, but intent. Not just by deed, but the heart. An act then is only truly good if it is motivated first and foremost by a desire to please and honor the Lord. Anything else? is ultimately motivated by nothing more than a desire to please and honor the self. And so non-believers then are unable to do good according to this standard, God's word, true good. And thus the relative good that they do is nothing more than a splendid vice. Since it does not proceed from faith, it is ultimately sin. Because it is not in reference uh, to God and his glory, but only self and its glory. That's the very heart and soul of what sin is. The sin that separates us from the God who is life. And the sin that demands death. So yes, pagans sometimes seem pretty good. If we rightly define that good. They can do relative good, earthly good, which again is better than no good. But it is not ultimate good. And thus it is not saving good. So this is the part that I think that we've got to start to believe. Thus, the the non-believer, whatever word you want to use, any person apart from Christ, in doing that good, whatever it is, actually does nothing for their soul. The Puritans used to understand that actually would end up doing harm for their soul because it was ultimately rooted in self-righteousness. Whatever it is that they're doing, it does nothing to solve the problem of their separation from the God alone who is good, the God alone who is life. And so that person thus remains ultimately just as damned as the not-so-good pagan. Because relative good saves no one. Earthly good saves no one. Christianity is not morality. Christianity is not activism. Thus, a Christian is not one who is pretty good and does some pretty good things. Often, pagans are pretty good and do some pretty good things. And apart from Christ, they die justly condemned to hell. Our culture is increasingly trying to categorize everyone into these various different identity groups Don't do that. Don't buy into the world's language and definitions and classifications because Scripture already categorizes everyone into two groups, the righteous and the wicked, God's people and not God's people. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. There's no other identity that matters, righteous, wicked. But yes, sometimes pagans seem pretty good, while God's people are often pretty bad. So again, what's the deal? What's the difference between the two and why? Point number three. Let's get to some good news. I want you to see that God preserves and purifies his people. His sometimes pretty bad people. I said a moment ago that if you removed 7, 17, and 18 from the story, then Abimelech wins. Abimelech is better than Abraham. But we can't do that. We cannot remove 7 and 17 and 18 because... That's the most important part. Those are the verses in which God says something about Abraham. Those are the verses in which God acts on behalf of Abraham. And listen, that's the difference between the righteous and the wicked. Between Christians and pagans. Not our relative goodness, but God's perfect goodness. Not our works, but God's grace. I said at the beginning that the whole point of this story was to remind and encourage God's people that he protects and preserves them. And that's what he does here for Sarah. Verse 6, he does not allow her to be touched. Verse 16, she's restored and vindicated. Praise God that he protects and preserves his people better than we do. Abraham fails to do what he was supposed to do. God does not. But even more amazingly... God also preserves and protects Abraham, even in his sin and failure. And I want you to think about this. Did you ever wonder about this? Look at verse 6 again. God says to Abimelech, I did not let you touch her. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. That's God talking to Abraham, to Abimelech. Are you tracking? What, what question does that raise? What about Abraham? We've seen Abraham sin all over this passage. You have seen your sin all over your life. God kept Abimelech from sinning against him, but not Abraham. And often not us. Why is that? If God is so perfectly good and perfectly sovereign, why does he allow, ordain even, his people's sin? I encourage you to read the letters of John Newton. John Newton is one of my uh, favorite uh, pastors. Um, This is what he writes about this, and I was really helped by this a long time ago, so I read this again and again. John Newton says this, How can these things be? Since God hates sin, and he teaches his people to hate it and cry out against it, and since he's promised to hear our prayers, how is it that we continue in sin? By this, God teaches us more truly to know and feel the utter depravity and corruption of our whole nature that we are indeed defiled in every part his method of salvation is likewise hereby exceedingly endeared to us we see that it is and must be of grace holy of grace and that the lord jesus christ and his perfect righteousness is and must be our all in all You see, God allows Abraham's sin because God loves Abraham. Because God is going to overrule Abraham's sin and evil for good. He is going to allow temporary evil for ultimate good. And listen, God does the same thing for you. God wants to show you your sin because he loves you. God will sometimes show other people around you your sin because he loves you. Sin is always bad for you. And since love is seeking the good of the loved, God will always seek to expose our sin, that which is always bad for us, to bring about that which is good for us. And it is kind when he does so. He is purifying his people. He is weaning us off of our love for sin and self. He is repeatedly reminding us of our weakness and depravity. And at the same time, he's he's magnifying his power and his mercy. The more I can see how sinful I actually am, the more I can see how gracious God actually is. Because I may not see the true depths of my depravity, but God does perfectly. Perfectly. He sees and knows that I can't even preach a sermon about his grace with perfect motives and without sin. I can't do a single thing apart from that, that sin that taints and affects everything within me. So again, if it's our own goodness and our own morality, we're, we're, we're doomed. Right? I, we have no hope whatsoever but if we can see that sin still taints everything that we do and we can still see that God's grace still overrules everything that we do for good then all of a sudden we are known and we know that we are known and as we come to his word and his promises again and again and again we see that he still loves us even though he knows us still sends his son to die for me he's still faithful kind and good to me see, it's, it's that fact, it's the realization of the magnitude of my sin, but the greater magnitude of his mercy that slowly begins to actually change and transform me. It's not by focusing on my own good and trying real hard to be good. Anybody can do that. There are plenty of pagans who have done more relative good than I have. But it's seeing my lack of goodness and God's abundance of grace that then begins to, to fuel and fire me to seek to be truly good. It's His grace that begins to make me good, like Jesus Christ. Unlike the world, I'm no longer having to establish my goodness. You see, the difference in the Christian is that he knows that he doesn't have any goodness. I have no righteousness in myself That's the whole point. The gospel is that God provides me the required perfect righteousness in his son, Jesus Christ, the promised one, the one to whom all the promises of Abraham are ultimately about the son, the seed who is going to come and live and die and rise again in the place of his sinful people. You see, that's the difference between the Christian and the pagan, the righteous and the wicked. It's not good and they are bad all of us are bad we just know it and because we know it by the grace of God we now turn and throw ourselves on Christ who is our righteousness and our goodness you see Christ is the difference the grace of God is the only difference relative goodness or righteousness doesn't eternally matter at all you have to be perfect to be saved. You have to be 100% perfectly righteous in God's eyes to be saved. And that is only found by grace through faith in the perfectly righteous one, Jesus Christ, who lives and dies and rises again for sinners like us. So yes, sometimes we Christians are pretty bad, but always Christ is perfectly good. And we are in him. Let me emphasize, this is not an excuse for us to go on sinning, by no means, Paul would say. We're taking a realistic look at indwelling sin so that we'll have realistic expectations, but more importantly, we're looking at the fact that God's grace is greater than all our sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Not so that we can stay in our sin, but so that seeing the glory of his grace, we are actually motivated to flee from that sin and to cling to Christ and to become more and more like Him. More and more actually good and actually righteous. And it's a lifelong process and it's a gift of grace. And He who begins the good work in us will bring it to completion. And that's why this story is such good news for us. Abraham does everything that he can to mess things up, he keeps throwing up all kinds of obstacles. Uh, in the way of the fulfillment of God's promises, and you have done the same thing. But see how God protects his people here. See how he preserves them, and see how he fulfills his promises in spite of the sin and failures of his people. You cannot get in the way of God's promises. I take great... I'm, I can mess up anything. I am excellent at messing up things. You cannot mess up God's promises. It, it is morally and... In, in physically incapable for us to stop what God has promised to do in his people. He has got you in his hands. He is in control. He is working in and through all things, even the dumb sin of his people. So trust this God. God always protects and preserves his people. And if you're in Christ, that is a promise to and for you. And finally, let me briefly close Just kind of maybe drawing it back to some of what we were talking about earlier with Jacob and the nations and and, and missions. What I want you to see here is that it is only the promises of God and the word of God administered through his people that is any hope for the world around us. Abraham has been terrible. Abimelech has seemed pretty good. And yet, verse 4, God calls Abraham a prophet that's the first word use of that word in the Bible. That means that Abraham speaks for God. He speaks on behalf of God. He intercedes for man before God. So God says, hey, pretty good seeming Abimelech, your only hope is my word. Through this, yes, sometimes pretty bad, Abraham. Go to him so that he will pray for you and you shall live. Abimelech's hope, his life, is dependent on and mediated through uh, God's people, Abraham. Verse 17, then Abraham prayed to God. God healed Abimelech, healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Closed wombs opened. Not the very next verses, 21.1. God opens Sarah's womb. And God finally fulfills the promise of the son that he had made 24 years ago by protecting and preserving her and by purifying Abraham. You see, this this passage is clearly about life and death, and life and death are in God's hands. And the life and death of the pagans here is entirely dependent on their connection to God's man, Abraham, even in his sin. Abraham is the one in the wrong, yet Abimelech still must ask Abraham, God's chosen instrument of salvation to intercede for him. Though Abraham had nearly brought death to Abimelech through his sin, Abraham is still God's chosen means to bring him life and blessing. And so here we see Abraham prefigure Christ, but also we see him also here in, uh, prefiguring us, the church. This is what I want you to, to hear and leave with as we close. We are the only hope for the pagan world. Not because we're good, not because we got brilliant ideas, but because we've got the gospel. We're the only ones who have the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. I'm so sad that there's another election coming up. I hate all these things and it's coming up and I don't want to deal with any of it. I don't care who wins, it's not going to change anything. Not going to change anything. The only actual hope for the world and for the people around you is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a morality. It's not our politics. It's not our activism. It's not our transforming the culture or ushering in the kingdom. Only Christ can do that. And he does that when he returns. That is not our job. Our relative goodness is not the hope of the world. Christ's perfect righteousness is the only hope of the world. That righteousness that comes by grace through faith. That righteousness that is only offered through the gospel, that is the power of God for salvation. Levittown, listen, that's the hope of the world. That's the hope of all of these thousands and thousands and thousands of people around you. Listen, that's how we help the world. We are sometimes pretty bad. The world sometimes seems pretty good. But the world will be no different than Sodom in chapter 19 if it does not hear the good news from us. And by the grace of God, repent and believe. The promise of God of forgiveness and life for all who believe in Jesus is the only hope of anyone in this dark and dying world. And for whatever reason, in God's mysterious providence, he mediates that message through us, his people. So church, consider. Do you consider those around you as dead in their trespasses and sins apart From Jesus Christ. And does your relationship and interaction with him. In any way reflect that fact. Let me encourage you to start by doing what Abraham does in verse 17. Pray. Start. Start with praying for the lost around you. Uh, Pray uh, that God uh, would intercede. And that God would uh, save them. And then love those around you more and more. By intentionally and boldly, though wisely and kindly, just beginning to speak to people of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you in giving you life. Um, church, that that's why uh, we are here. Jesus Christ is the only difference between us and the world, and Jesus Christ is the only hope of the world. Um, I pray uh, that Levittown would continue to be a light and that the gospel would continue to go forth uh, from this pulpit and this place and this people uh, in great power. Um, so let me pray for that now as we close. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, it truly is a living and active word. My words, Father, have no power or no ability to accomplish anything of, of heavenly or eternal value. But, Father, your word is mighty and it is powerful. Father, there are many people in this room that are proof of that fact. Father, we were the ones who were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were lovers of self. Um, Father, we were haters of you, and we were your enemies. And yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Father, you have done an amazing, the most supernatural and miraculous of works in, in bringing us um, from death to life based upon nothing that we have done, but entirely on on Jesus Christ. Father, thrill us with that truth. Father, may we, uh, may Levittown be a a people that is overwhelmed with your love and your mercy and your grace to them. I pray that you would help them to understand it more and more through the word that is proclaimed um, here in this place, and that you... Uh, would give them great joy in the grace that they have found Christ in Christ, and that that love and joy would overflow into great love for each other, and then into great love um, for those around them, and then Father into a great desire and motivation uh, to speak uh, the good news um, that is that is Your power to save. And Father, do that through here through Levittown. Father, continue to do that through through Jacob, um, through the Persian Church. Um, Father, continue to save sinners there, and and may we, some of the more established churches here who sometimes really struggle to reach certain segments of the population around us, um, Father, may we be more convicted and compelled um, to do whatever it is that we can to get the gospel to the nations around us. Um, Father, we are desperately in need of your help, and so we ask for that help now in the name of Jesus, amen.